Chapter fifty one, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter fifty one, part one. Weary reader of a wayworn autobiographer, clasp my hand. We draw near to our place of parting, not because my story is all told, but because it can be told no farther than in the detached memoranda of this final chapter, for it must be a sort of omnibus chapter, in which are to be crowded as many as its limited capacity can carry of memory's latest passengers. They must find places as they can and, alas, how many are left behind altogether. In the autumn of 1882, while on a visit to Rose Hill Coventry, I had some conversation with Miss Sarah Hennell, author of Thoughts in Aid of Faith, concerning her lifelong friend George Eliot. We went over to Birdgrove, where George Eliot's girlhood and youth were passed, and in the unoccupied house I submitted to her my theory. George Eliot had grown up mentally at a time when marriage was clerical, and connected with the subjection of women to an extent that lost it the reverence of progressive thinkers. But after her irregular union with Lewis the laws were reformed and her position was unhappy. Young ladies were, however, able to quote her example. Under these circumstances, after Lewis's death, she married Mr. Cross in a fashionable church with almost ostentatious clerical solemnities for the express purpose of avowing her mistake in the Lewis Union, and reversing her example. Sarah Hennell said in substance, I wrote my notes next day, Marian Evans was in youth morbidly pious. She was melancholy by temperament, and often in tears. She suffered from loneliness. The first thing she wrote was a review of Froude's Nemesis of Faith in a Coventry paper. It fell into Froude's hands, and he came from London to see her. My sister and Mr. Bray and I were arranging a tour in Switzerland, Marian Evans with us, and Froude intended to go with us, but at the railway station a note came saying he was on the point of being married and could not come. I probably spoke to Sarah Hennell of the possible bearing of the nemesis of faith, wherein a wife meeting one she loves regards her legitimate marriage as a sort of adultery, on George Eliot's union with Lewis. We all regarded this union as a calamity said Sarah Hennell. Mr. Bray regarded it as due to her defective self-esteem and self-reliance, and her sufferings from loneliness. She continued to suffer from loneliness, but came to love the characters in her books as if they were her children. She loved them even when they were wicked. Once, when I was at her house in London, looking at some sketches from Romola, we paused before Tito. After a moment's silence, George Eliot said softly, as if to herself, "'The dear fellow!' I exclaimed, he's not a dear fellow at all, but a very bad fellow. Ah, she said, I was seeing him with the eyes of Romola. After the theological and ecclesiastical anarchy that set in after the Tractarian movement at Oxford, there were many indications of a moral revolt, for the most part theoretical, resembling that which followed the fall of Roman Catholicism at Geneva, which Calvin crushed by beheading brilliant Jacques Gruet. The nemesis of faith was one sign of it, and Hawthorne's scarlet letter was a reflection of it. The effort of Swinburne to revive it in England by his audacious poems was suppressed somewhat in Calvin's way, 
his head was metaphorically cut off. He did indeed write some brilliant poems after that, notably his Songs Before Sunrise, but for his wonderful genius they were songs of an afterglow. I used to see a good deal of Swinburne in the time of his controversy with the Philistines, and, being a born lover of liberty, held in horror the conspiracy of critics to repress his genius. His poem addressed to Walt Whitman in America affected me as a plaintive swan-song. Walt Whitman took it rather too much as a laudation of himself. Swinburne was really attracted mainly by his audacity. He wrote me a long letter about Whitman, but has requested me not to print it, and I agree with him that it would misrepresent his maturer thought. In 1883 and 4 I made a voyage around the world, studying especially the various religions of mankind—Buddhism, Brahmanism, Parsiism, Jainism, Islam, Brahmoism, Theosophy, Mormonism, and other movements. My observations and adventures during this journey, when fully written, proved to be a record too extensive for inclusion in the present work. It amounts indeed to a volume— and must await its time to see the light. Now, at the age of fifty-two, I desired to leave the pulpit. I had been in that kind of work since I was nineteen. My twenty-one years at South Place Chapel had enabled me to deliver my religious and ethical convictions with a certain completeness, and I had several works in view that demanded literary leisure. So we sold our house in Bedford Park, and on July twenty-seven, the last of my seven farewell discourses, published in 1884, was given. The last months of 1884 we gave to Berlin, where we saw something of the Webers and Bunsens, and other learned men, and joined in the homage to the historian von Reinke on his ninetieth birthday. His English daughter-in-law enabled us to converse pleasantly with the charming old man, whose mind was clear. A herald announced the approach of the young princes, and the company ranged themselves close to the walls while the royal youths handed large white bouquets to the author. Our particular friends in Berlin were Hermann Grimm and his wife, daughter of Goethe's Bettine. Hermann Grimm, endeared to all lovers of Emerson by his exquisite essay on his works, was the most attractive gentleman we knew in Berlin. We were invited every Sunday evening to his house, but I lost this friend by a single sentence in The Wandering Jew, which I presented to him. Writing in 1880, during an outbreak of Judenhetze, in Germany, I said, The retention of the Reverend Mr. Stalker as court chaplain while he is leading this agitation so unscrupulously is a confession that the anti-Semitic movement has the encouragement of the Emperor and his Chancellor. So we saw the Grimms no more. A mutual friend told me that Hermann Grimm had no sympathy with the Judenhetze nor with Stalker, but that he could not tolerate a word that might reflect on the emperor. Bismarck in the Reichstag impressed me as a finer parliamentary leader than either Gladstone or Beaconsfield. There was a simplicity in his art, an air of deference in his force, and a repose in his manner which added moral dignity to his fine physical presence. One day a radical member made a fierce and at times insulting attack on the government. Bismarck, in his reply, made only a brief passing allusion to the personalities, saying, We also are capable of such feelings, and if we do not express them, it is for the sake of good manners. What could be more neat? The Honorable Alfonso Taft and his family had been members of my church in Cincinnati, 
and our friendship with them had continued for twenty-seven years. Judge Taft, having become minister to Russia, we were invited to visit them in St. Petersburg. The weeks we passed there were always memorable to us. We were entertained by the Tsar and Tsarina, who spoke English, she fluently, and met the diplomatic people. It was especially useful to me to converse confidentially about Russia with so exact and thoroughly informed a lawyer as Judge Taft. When we worked together in our church in Cincinnati, the Jews were friendly to our society, the rabbis Wise and Lilienthal paying me much attention, and the reputation of Russia for hostility to that race troubled me. It so happened that Minister Taft was just concluding his interviews with the government on two cases of Russian Jews naturalized in the United States who were desirous of securing permits of residence, which would enable them to enter Russia. By Russian law no native could leave the country without official permission, and those who had gone without such permission were liable to arrest on their return. This law was applicable to all races, but the discrimination concerning the Jews was that the law prohibited their coming in any case to Odessa and a few other localities. The right of Russia to pass such laws could not be questioned, the minister said, there being nothing inconsistent with them in any treaty. And as for the apparent animus against Jews, he said that after many conversations with the Tsar and his ministers, he was satisfied that no one in the government had the least ill-feeling toward that people. There was no discrimination against Jews in St. Petersburg or in Moscow. Russia has built many colleges for them in various cities. But in certain remote places it had been found that a fanatical prejudice and hatred lingered, which the coming of a new Jew might fan into unmanageable flame, dangerous not to one, but to all Jews. The restrictions are therefore for the security of the Jews— the government cannot distribute military companies in all these distant regions to manage mobs. Observing the adoration of the Holy Bambino in the Arakeli Church, Rome, the infant Jesus carved from a tree on the Mount of Olives, painted by St. Luke and decorated by popes and princes, the doll with its staring eyes faced me with a two quoque. I, too, had all my life been decorating one Bambino after another, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Prophet, the Martyr, the Typical Man, the Reformer, the Altruist, the Free-Thinking Teacher. Strauss's declaration that the man once merged in a god is irrecoverably lost seemed to me justified by all the modern lives of Jesus, including that of Renan. It was surprising to find Renan accepting so many incidents related of Jesus' inversions that make them inconsistent with his own portraiture such as the attack on the money-changers. Un jour même, dit-on, la colère l'emporta, il frappa à coups de fouet ces ignobles vendeurs et renversa leurs tables. En général, il aimait peu le temple. If he cared little for the temple, why be so violent with the sacristans fulfilling their functions, as Renan says? Professor Noyes was careful to point out to us at Cambridge that a right interpretation of the story in John showed that the whip was used solely to drive out the sheep and the oxen. Unfortunately, Dr. Noyes did not recognize that the violence to the money-changers was imported clumsily from the synoptics into the text of the fourth gospel, where it was really written. He made a whip of small cords and drove out of the temple court the sheep and oxen, and to those that sold doves he said, Remove them. 
In all my pleadings against war, since my nineteenth year, I have found its chief entrenchment among Christians to be that scourge of Jesus in the temple. The Prince of Peace was always accommodated to that assault, and I have no doubt that the supposed incident has been the chief consecration of bloodshed. Being myself long convinced that the thing was incredible, it appeared to me comic at the Oberammergau Passion Play, 1871, that the money-changers should receive their blows submissively from a man they could easily have arrested. But in 1879 Dr. Nicholson, afterwards Bodleian librarian at Oxford, sent me sheets of his Gospel According to the Hebrews, and in it I noticed a saying of Jesus preserved from that lost Gospel by Epiphanius. And they, Ebionites, say that he, Jesus, both came and, as their so-called Gospel has it, instructed them that he had come to destroy the sacrifices, and said, Unless ye cease from sacrificing, the wrath will not cease from you. The wrath, Hearge, is a personification. All sacrifice is devil-worship. But to end sacrifices altogether was to destroy the last remnant of priestly support and authority. Here, then, for the first time I discovered a sufficient cause for the execution of Jesus. He might have repeated the disparagements of sacrifice contained in several psalms and prophetic books, but the very efforts of the early Christians, themselves adhering to the principle of sacrifice, to turn this temple incident into an attack on merchants, and zeal for the temple, proved to me that they would not have entirely invented it. The young genius had gathered around him a large crowd of anti-sacrifice reformers, too numerous for the temple police to resist, and driven the sacrificial animals out of the temple courtyard bazaar. Such is the outcome of reforming zeal. Zoroaster declares an eternal war between the good mind and the evil mind, and Parsi theology comes to derive both as twins from one mind anterior to both. Buddha says there are no gods, and is himself made a god. Jesus denounces sacrifice, and is himself made the supreme sacrifice. When I made this discovery, my ministry had closed. What a source of light it would have been to me had I been taught that at Harvard Divinity School. I have tried to impress it on liberal teachers, but generally they cling to their bambino, the humanitarian teacher and the freethinkers who do not believe any human Jesus existed have a bambino of their own, some Krishna Christos or solar form. No doubt they will mostly consider my anti-sacrifice enthusiast merely my ninth bambino. And practically that is of little importance, but it is of serious importance that the Christian clergy should sacrifice to the letter of Scripture the character of Jesus. A violent attack on men engaged in selling sacrificial animals at a temple door would be as immoral, intolerant, and brutal as a similar attack to-day on those who sell tracts in a church vestibule, or the vendors of candles to burn before holy pictures. To scatter their money would be robbery. To drive cattle out of the temple precincts may have been lawful, and at any rate it is not inconsistent with generous sentiments. In witnessing the Passion Play again I remarked more than on the former occasion the absence from the drama of any real motive for putting Jesus to death. Humanly speaking, it laid upon the Jews the crime of killing an innocent man through diabolical hatred of his excellence and wisdom, and at the same time showed that they could not help themselves, the whole thing being divinely ordained for the salvation of mankind. End of chapter 51
part one